Hello and a warm welcome uh, to a new episode of the Yuan podcast from the Department of Anesthesiology um, at the Universitätsmedizin in Göttingen. Today is April the 9th and the year is 2020. The world outside is still trying to cope with the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic and the medical community is facing challenges many of us never imagined. I'm thrilled and honored to introduce two distinguished scientists as guests to, in today's show. Professor Michael Quintel over here um, was head of the Department of Anesthesiology in Göttingen for years and now leads a research group here in Göttingen. And Professor Luciano Gattinoni has been or is the medical director at the University Hospital in Milan and head of the Department of Anesthesiology and Critical Care. And we are happy to have him here in Göttingen at the moment as a visit visiting professor uh, and we can learn while watching uh, him think <laughs> here in Göttingen. These two scientists are connected by their vast expertise in critical care and their special interests in sepsis, ARDS, and their therapeutic options. Each of them has uh, accumulated several hundreds of publication, publications in renowned journals, and their work has been cited 10,000-fold. Um, both have significant impact in our field. If you work in an ICU, you most certainly will have met their line of work and read their papers. I'm sure that these two remarkable scientists and physicians have a special insight and the current developments um, in these times uh, of the novel coronavirus. In these days, you are rushing from interview to interview. I appreciate your time. Um, and let's start with a question. Usually, I guess uh, that when you're giving interviews, you might be asked about the differences between the classical ARDS and COVID-19. Let's flip this around uh, and talk about the similarities of ARDS and COVID-19. What can we do the same way? Well, I wouldn't start with asking what could we do in the same way. What I would like to emphasize first is The reason why we look at the viral pneumonia as in the beginning or why it is looked as a RDS is hypoxemia. So um, it's respiratory failure, hypoxemic respiratory failure, but there is a large difference to classical RDS, at least in the beginning of the disease. So because these lungs have a quite good compliance, And uh, so they do not show the typical signs of an RDS lung, no densities in the dependent parts of the lung, no gravity dependent distribution of edema. And that's why they do, are not reactive to the typical treatments that we use in RDS, which is proning, increasing PEEP, trying to recruit the lung. These patients, by definition, do not have anything to recruit. So it's hypoxemic respiratory failure in the first phase, yes, but it's not RDS. Now we can discuss, and there are a lot of people in the world discussing, do we still need the definition of RDS or does not RDS mean something that we use to classify patients for, for studies? Um, however, the large difference is it's an more or less in the beginning non-recruitable lung because it is recruited it is elastic so there is not the typical problem of superimposed pressure and of large edema and a lot of lung weight well uh, <coughs> what is really peculiar in this is this a disease 
RDS is a syndrome. And so we have all the patients that we have uh, since the beginning till the end, more or less in the same way. And this is a basic difference. Then, say ARDS, yes, ARDS, no. Who cares, really? Because if you look at the current definition, which is more or less for the studies, ARDS, bilateral infiltration, they have, yes. Hypoxemia, they have, yes. Is ARDS, okay. Because in ARDS, nobody put what uh, the mechanics are. But if you look at the definition of the RDS, according to Osbaug, lung weight, increased lung weight, low compliance, so on, it's not RDS. So, you know, is I think is a useless question. RDS, yes, RDS, not. Yeah. The, problem, no, the problem is that, uh, at least at the beginning, now the people we are learning, but this is the beginning, the people approach this disease as of a severe RDS. I pick prodding. Yeah, I, I think it, it comes from um, the wording of uh, the syndrome ARDS and people think when we have hypoxemia then this um, mixture of symptoms then it must be ARDS and we should treat every every hypoxemia the same way but it's not this not, not, not that easy it's not the case and uh, I think it's important to clarify that yeah, yeah but it's, it's the usual thing we discussed it very often between the two of us so the typical reaction if a new disease appears There are a lot of people in the world that try to explain to the rest of world of the world what this disease means without knowing anything. And this was extremely um, visible during the beginning of the COVID. And the first approach was they are hypoxemic. So we react in the way as we would react if it was, was typical RDS. So the guidelines, the German guidelines, the SCCM guidelines, Uh, they they do not cover the early stage of the disease at all. They are wrong. Simply spoken wrong. So it's a Pavlov reaction. Hypoxemia, I peep. If all a man knows is a hammer, the whole world looks like ARDS. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. absolutely. Yeah. That's true. That's true. So um, from your, your point of view, what can we do in the in the first phases to 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 help the patients coming into our shop uh, coming into the ICU um, when our strategies fail or well, seem to fail but well, first of all i think the patients do not come first to the ICU well, they develop to the ICU and the typical the typical start at least from what has been gathered by luciano from the data from italy is that in the very beginning these patients are hypoxemic. So the question is, why are they hypoxemic? And it looks very, very much like as if they would have extremely expanded pulmonary vessels. So you can total, total vasodilation in the pulmonary vasculature, which leads to the fact that they get an extremely high functional shunt volume. The high shunt, shunt volume creates hypoxemia and the typical reaction of you, me, of all of us, we start to breathe. So what we become is hypocapnic and we compensate for the hypoxemia. And as long as our brain is happy with the O2, everything is fine. And these patients are not dyspneic. Then maybe... This is just an assumption, but there is a, some evidence because they are breathing so heavily, 
they cause something that we would like to, that we can call self-inflicted lung injury. By doing so, the edema in the lung increases, the inflammation. It might also be a natural uh, cause of the disease, which helps at, at least. And all of a the sudden, they have to move more heavy lungs and then they decompensate and then they start to become dysphoric. This would explain um, the dynamic of, of this disease that pa patients are stable for several days yes. um, until the tipping point um, when they cannot cope with the mechanical work of, of, of breathing on their own. Well, you know, I, I think uh, the clear, clear data are not, but we have a lot of indication and signal about that. Let's say, uh, because we see the patient when they come into the hospital, But as an example, do you think that the patient coming in the hospital that they want or uh, after the symptoms or the, the day three or the day seven or the day 10 because the patient is fear to come into the hospital are the same? So even the data at entry has to be judged in, uh, in the relationship of uh, the time that the patient has been alone. To me, the dyspnea, that means when the patient is no more able to move because he doesn't get the air he expects because of the edema is the turning point. Yeah. At this point, all the therapy should be aimed to, to a really one thing because the correction of oxygenation is trivial. It's not a problem. But the correction has to be devoted to stop the very deep swings of the pleural pressure which is the basic of further edema and progression of the disease. So this is the aim. How to do it? Oh, we have several, uh, several options. Well, the, 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 there is, I know that there is an ongoing question to start with NIV, yes or no. I think it's reasonable in the beginning. Um, it's a well-established therapy, but um, it should be carefully monitored If the assist that can be provided by using NIV does not only lead to a better oxygenation, but does really help the patient to make not too depth breath, so to really reduce the respiratory work of the patient. If this works, then I think NIV might be used extremely effective. The first approach for treating hypoxemia in this case is, by the way, giving oxygen. That's uh, so, and there is one thing where, where also the world is actually struggling with. So there is this high flow oxygen nasal cannula, and um, uh, there is, we know meanwhile that there are aerosols. And uh, so to, to use a flow of 60 liters per minute or even 80, for me, I have my doubts that is also it would be effective in treating. But with regard to the, to the spread of the virus, um, maybe this is not a good idea. A good idea with regard to the spread of the virus would certainly be the helmet because it keeps everything in the helmet. However, the helmet has a, a problem wherever... Whenever you had a helmet on your own head, you know that it takes some difficulties to put it away and to replace it. And this might even be a phase 
where the staff has to get very close to the patient. So I'm not sure if it, this is the best way of non-invasive ventilation. However, whenever you use non-invasive ventilation, the most important thing is to monitor the patient carefully for respiratory efforts. That's the crucial point. And as soon as you realize that it is not effective enough to reduce the respiratory drive, then the patient has to be intubated. Absolutely. This is the, the key point, uh, the key point of the treatment. You know, but let's see, you have uh, this, uh, you don't know anything. Okay, you have the tube and you have the patient. Now, the mistake you do with early intubation is greater or lower than the mistake you do with the late intubation. I think it's lower anyway. It's a mistake, but less, with less consequence. Do you agree? I, tot I totally agree. Um, I, I, I don't like the word being aggressive with intubation, but I, I, well, we have this discussion with NIV independent from COVID before. We know ending NIV too late is, has a bad influence on outcome. So in this case, I would tend even to be earlier. Okay, for, for, for several reasons, yeah. Okay, but in this case, okay, you put a tube. Remember the goal, why you put a tube. Of course. So if you keep the patient, okay, I put the patient, 15 of pressure support and Same. 15 of PIP is a tremendous disaster because you have to keep the patient sedated, mm -hmm. not spontaneous breathing, quiet, mm -hmm. and wait. Because the PO2 will go up. Yeah. But if you go, okay, if it goes up, I start to win. You start to win, pressure support, disaster. Mm. So you have to wait because this disease takes time. Yeah. You have to, to wait out the immunomodulation. And, um, well, but the problem, the, the virus, our antibodies or our reserve win because there are not all the, the drugs which are around now. With no one apparently is effective. And remember that 95% of the of the people affected with CODI doesn't have a great problem. You know, so I I think there, there might be many reasons why these patients have such a high respiratory drive. Um, it might even be a direct effect of the virus because we know that in a way he's neuro this virus is neurotropic. Mm. We know it from the olfactory, even from the ophthalmic nerve. Yeah. And might maybe even that he if affects directly the breathing center, what we do not know. But anyhow, what we should, if you stop, um, let's say sedation and try to start to let the patient breathe spontaneously, you should be extremely careful. And as soon as you realize that the patient has still the tendency to breathe like hell, as he did before, you should immediately stop it and get back to the... the. So if I, I, I'm, 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 I, if I try to say it in a word, you always need patience if you treat patients. But in these patients, you need even more patience and look carefully, slowly, how the disease 
is um, how the, the our own body tries to get along with the disease. Yeah, what uh, Professor Gattinoni once said in a, in a lecture was that uh, critical care is not the chase of brilliant ideas, but of minute details, um, which resonates re resonates with me. And I think it's even more true in, in this situation. Um, when jumping back to the NIV, um, um, what I think we have to learn is um, ventilating our patients with lung protective uh, strategies, even when they're breathing on their own, what we are not used to, because we think they regulate on themselves how much How, how deep their breaths should be and yeah, this is what I'm, I was thinking about. Well, uh, I, I think we have to protect the lung from the doctors yes. in this condition because uh, That's true. It, this is one of the conditions in which less you do, probably better it is. Mm. But that spontaneous breathing may induce big edema as described by Barak in 1938, Annals of Internal Medicine, beautiful paper. Kolobov and Mascheroni induce uh, severe in acid in the sheep. Spontaneous breathing, 24-hour disaster, ARDS. So, you know, the only difference between Vili and uh, spontaneous breathing, in, one one, uh, in the first case, what uh, induced the Vili is the money you pay for the electric power. In the second case, you pay the same money for nutrition and to move the muscles. But the effects on the system are basically the same. So you have to be extremely careful. And I think, as our friend Bob Barter was saying, this is one of the cases in which forget the protocol. The protocol yeah. is the best way to reach the truth when you don't know the truth. Yeah. In this particular case, we do not know the truth. So forget the protocol and follow the physiology and hopefully the good, the common sense. And you know, if I can add something, in Italy, we had a quite high mortality. But because the number of patients was so high that no, they, they cannot be all treated as a, accordingly. They, they so we, we, are, we had some patient with CPAP helmet for three, four days. Breathing as a head. What can else you can do if you don't have anything? Yeah, sure. So this is what I think sure. was the problem. And you see that the mortality will improve. Yeah. So the survival will improve a lot, uh, reducing, as already happens now, yeah. reducing the number of patients. Yeah, I, th I think so too. And the, the Italian healthcare system is not that different from ours. And mm. No, they were, they were simply hit by a tsunami and yeah. at this time not very well prepared and they ended up to not being able to provide the usual high-quality care because it were simply too many. Yeah. Full stop. Full stop. So, yeah. I think to prepare that was almost impossible, but, yeah. but to prepare to the pandemic, at least in terms of protection of the doctors and so on, this, somebody should have provided that. Because yeah. this was yeah, that's right. claimed, not once, but several times. We are fair of this. Uh, but tell me what politician invents in prevention. Yeah. The result of the prevention, the best result uh, is that nothing happened. Yeah. Now, to pay $2 million, what is the result? Nothing. Yeah. So the politicians are a little bit reluctant. No, the, the, that's what, what we face in Germany right now, I guess. Um, oh. We are lucky enough that the tsunami 
um, seems to come in in a, in a slower pace uh, than in Italy and Spain or France. Um, yes, we have but more... You, But you, but you can already see uh, the naysayers and the critics um, getting louder and get, it's getting harder to, to, to stay put and stay at home and, and, and keep the social distancing at place. Uh. Well, well, I'm and Luzani, we, we discussed it a lot. We are both physicians, so with some pathophysiologic knowledge in the background, so no politicians. But anyway... All of us have an own pocket and they, they, they want to have some money in the pocket, which is quite obvious. And I think um, now more and more the, the economic consequences will also play a role in deciding, if you say it very hard, how much death do we have to accept or should we accept not to run in a total economic yeah. crisis? What price are we willing What to pay? What price are we willing to pay? Also, we are talking about lives, which is terrible, but okay. in, it, it's, it's, it's a fact. The other way around, thinking that uh, uh, a lot of people get in poverty, lose their jobs, lose their existence. So it's, it's also a high price to pay. So, and to find the balance between this, this is, this is the, would be the task of, Good politicians, however, my problem, Luciano's problem, neither in Italy nor in Germany, I know politicians who are able to do it or want to do it at least. Mm. Well, I don't have any any answer to that, but this is a real uh, is a real disaster, yeah. you know, is and that brings in uh, so economy, religion, mm -hmm. society, a culture, history. Uh -huh relationship the risk we have uh, that uh, the our politicians do not find uh, a reasonable way uh, to be to pay the price uh, not only economic price but also political price for the next 20 years yeah. in yeah. terms of Europe uh, so and also any state in Europe that can uh, can compete with uh, China or India yeah. <laughs> or US is enough to look at the map. Yeah. Take a map and look at the dimension of the states. That's it. Yeah, the, this pandemic is sometimes compared to the uh, terror, terroristic attacks of 9-11 um, in terms of calculations of time. There's a time before 9-11 and a time mm -hmm. after 9-11. Um, and I think for the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic, it's the same. It will be definitely be the same. Yeah. No, we like or we don't like our life uh, will change. Will change for sure. Absolutely. Maybe we don't like, but <laughs> the same. Yeah. Um, to give this a positive spin. Um, yes. <laughs> It's always good to be positive. Um, <laughs> do you think there's something we will have learned from this pandemic? Um, what we, techniques, procedures, skills we acquired during this pandemic, um, what we will use in our, well, the, I the think rest of our lives? To me, the most important thing, the society learn that uh, the sanitary system is something which is maybe important. For how many years we heard that we have uh, optimization. Mm -hmm. What means optimization? To cut the number of the doctors, to cut the number of money, to cut the number of the beds in uh, the hospital. So we have less doctor, 
Less doctor mean less occasion to speak each other to confront. They mean less doctor and more ignorant. I'm afraid, and the society realized this, and I think this is a great signal to be back. Then I don't know the politician will see, but we learned that, and from the point of view of the medicine, I think we learn that our protocol has to be filtered through the physiology common sense. But uh, I think what is quite impressive is the difficult to get across with relatively simple message when most of the younger generation are not accustomed to the physiological reasoning. If you speak about the VAQ mismatch, if you don't have an idea of what is or small idea, we cannot teach that in three minutes, no. not in five. Well, um i would say um, if we are lucky and we can save something that we might learn out of the situation, then it's exactly what Luciano said. It would be uh, to realize that, in, especially in situations where we are confronted in medicine with diseases or viruses that are causing diseases that we did not know so far, um, is to to learn that there will be no studies. There is nothing that we have. So what we have, this is also a citation from Luciano, if we do not have evidence, the only polar star who could guide, which could guide us is physiology. And this is true. But this means to lean back, to think, to consider what might be the reason in the background, and then to go step by step forward and not to deliver the simple answer this is hypoxemia so protocol b this will help and mm. um, if 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 this uh, if if we can take this out and the second thing which is the more political thing and we didn't discuss one of the issues which plays an important role if the healthcare systems would in all the countries in europe a little bit more more looked like the fire brigade so we know you we need it very rarely but nevertheless we are ready to pay for it and that's something we should learn from from this that there will be an investment to be able to react to a faster react and this includes also and this might run germ in germany in the next few weeks into a big problem might also include to have enough drugs, simple drugs, like sufentanil, like remifentanil, like propofol available in a crisis when it's now given to millions of patients in tons worldwide. So as far as I um, realize today, um, Fresenius and B. Brown and Hexal have been invited to our healthcare minister uh, and they simply had to state we are not able to produce more and the market is empty. Mm. So it's nice from us to say it's the same situation as um, having no ventilator but having somebody who is breathing like hell. It's easy to say we should sedate them. With what? if there is no propofol, if there is no sufentanil. So we have to get back to the old days with theopentone, with whatever. Even gases seem to be um, running uh, uh, a shortage of gases. So this will be lessons we have to learn. Keep production from both products. 
in a hopefully in future united Europe, mm. um, enabling us to do things independently on our own, not being related to transports over thousands of kilometers and things like that, yeah. hopefully. Being sustainable and change yeah. of production. That's right. Yeah. You're both scientists and you've done many studies. If you could choose a study, if you could muster the time to, to, to um, investigate something to, to help mitigate um, the, this crisis, um, what would be something you would be interested in, in, in learning? What's <laughs> the missing link? Is, is there a missing link? Well, so there are things I would like to know about this virus where I'm absolutely not an expert in. Um, and, uh, of course, I have some ideas where the the disease which is caused by, by this virus um, hits or comes together with areas of physiology and medicine where I think I have some knowledge. So questions from this point of view with, with regard neural effects of the virus, neural effects of the virus on the respiratory drive and the respiratory system. Yeah. But also, um, what is the virus really doing in our body? Um, I'm convinced the key problem is endothelium injury. Mm. So, uh, if I should something say, I, I even look not at um, the COVID in, in um, virus disease as a pulmonary disease. I think, yes, it gets into the human body via the lungs. Yes, it makes a virus, primarily a viral pneumonia. But I think the viral pneumonia is not the problem. The problem is that the virus in our body causes something like, I would call, a general vasculitis. And that's the problem. And this leads to the shunt in the, in, in, in the lungs. And this creates the picture that we have saying this is lung failure. Yeah, it's lung failure, but it's lung failure because of the effect on the endothelium and on the vasculature. So this will be of it. So this is outside on what we can do and what from our approach. So Luciano has done a lot of work. Uh, where I've done some work is to figure out which is the best approach to the things where we have knowledge. And this means what we have gathered as an experience, knowledge over the years. What can you do to keep the iatrogenic effects of a physician at the bedside as low as possible? That's it. Mm. And that's the interest from our, the research that we can do. Yes, that means measuring, that measuring negative pressure, and we have a, within this level green, orange, red, red intubate. Every, I mean, we have to understand the mechanism. If you do not understand mechanism, we cannot take care in the right way. Mm. That's it. So all our efforts will be to more and more and more understand the mechanism. Now I just received now one proposal to have a study on a wake patient on prone versus supine. Tell me what kind of sense make a study like this. I go with a gun with a patient in supine to put prone and maybe in prone this particular patient reacts, doesn't like it. 
if the patient likes, if we stay prone, alone, we know that. But this is the level at which we are. These are the kind of study proposed. Yeah, there are hundreds of studies popping up on PubMed. Um, well, absolutely without any sense. Yeah. And only the fewest of them are of any good use uh, in, the, in the clinical daily practice. Yeah. You know, before to go to the clinical daily practice, you had to know a lot of physiology. The most, the most simple maneuver yeah. in daily practice as behind or should have behind years of research, meditation, prove, disprove, and so on. Yeah. To be effective. So we are lacking basics in the treatment of our patients. Yeah, um, but I think even from the university. At the university, the university now, the, maybe somebody knows everything about the molecular mechanism, but uh, in our duties to keep alive a patient is a question of uh, bulk, bulk uh, flows. Until I put a flow of gas with a flow of blood in the right mixing at the given pressure, nobody dies. That's right. And so this we have to, to know how to do this with the lowest damage until our friend virologists find the protein X that uh, prohibit the duplication or replication of their fascinating world, mm. but it's not our world. Yeah. yeah. Or until we have a, a vaccination available which would work. <laughs> yes, that's, that's it. Yeah, that's what everybody's hoping for. Yeah, that's right. S simple solution. Yeah. Even the Novax, I'm afraid. Yeah. <laughs> Is there anything you would want us young physicians, the the residents at the at the bedside, to do with a COVID-19 patient? I think I would say not have a fear. Prudence, but not have fear, because with all the possible risk, with all the fatigue, this may be, will be remembered by them as one of the most enthusiastic and fascinating moments of their professional life. Yeah. It's a grassroots movement. That's uh, right. At, at, at some point. Yeah. But um, just to mention this, well, you know, um, this is also, I think, it could be and it should maybe change a little bit on how we train young physicians mm. because we tried to make them believe over the last years that they have to follow protocols, that they have to learn protocols to trust in protocols mm. to reproduce to knowledge. reproduce without using the brain and they, it, we, we um, preferred having people following a protocol than having people that uh, are using their brains. Yeah. And maybe we have to change a little bit and to be happy to have uh, young people who simply start to ask the right questions. Or even if they ask the wrong questions, to ask, uh, to, to ask questions where they should get an answer, even if they sound maybe in the beginning stupid. Yeah. So we, we need something to go beyond the guidelines absolutely, and the protocols. Absolutely. Uh, and it's that's common sense and, and a good education. You know, the, it, just to give you an example, in the beginning of this discussion, because of the shortcoming of ventilators, there was the idea that some people, and it was spread all over the world, you can use one ventilator and ventilate three patients. 
great idea. So, um, and if if there is one disease leading to pulmonary failure where it's more stupid to do this than it's than it's COVID, yeah. because this means individualized therapy if you want to be successful. Which, you, by definition, you can't do if you use one ventilator for three or for two, by definition. But you can use one bed for two patients. That's also. right. <laughs> yeah, so you save space. Hmm? Yeah. But you can just easily like, print yeah. an adapter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Simple solutions. Yeah. 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 Is there anything you want to add? I won't. Don't want to to prolong this uh, and don't. Uh, no, we be, we we both know it's primarily taken for for young physicians. Yeah, for the unions, and um, so we should not make them unhappy while having to listen too long time. Yeah. we are here. We can answer question in addition. We can repeat something like that whenever it's needed, but for listening and uh, for getting some ideas, I think this is just uh, uh, the, the, the right the right size. Yep. So thank you very much for your time, and I dearly hope you enjoyed this at least a little bit. It was nice. <laughs> I, I did, um, and maybe we get a chance to do this in the near future. I would be very happy. So thanks again. So thank you okay, for for, thank gu for for guiding these two old guys. Thank you, you too. <laughs> Ciao, ciao. Ciao, ciao. <laughs>